0: we start I just want to let you know you might hear some weird noises in the background of the audio on my end and that's because my cat Lola decided right now she absolutely has to play with everything she can get her hands on doesn't matter that I've taken away her most noisy toys while I'm recording she's finding anything and everything to play with so if you hear weird rustling or scratching post sounds that's my cat having a great time and I hope you enjoy it too (laughs) she's a great podcast producer excellent producer really hard working very
1: dedicated Best member of the team. Honestly, she's due for a promotion.
0: Don't let that. I mean, don't let her hear you. Don't. It, we don't need that to go to her head. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Sorry. Right, right, right.
1: Tracy, <laughs> I have a Webtoon recommendation for you. <gasps> yes. Okay. Give it to me. Okay. So there's this artist on Webtoons whose name is Van J, and they have two comics. One is called Mystical, and there's only 3 or 4 episodes out and it is i would say maybe in the family of the little mermaid but it's not it's not kitchy or disney it's kind of spooky Ooh, and okay. then they have another one that is about alchemy so so i'm sold since yeah you always play alchemists Slash you play an alchemist. I play an alchemist one time, but I love it. And I've been playing her for like two years, so. Right. So you're going to love this one. I just started it when I couldn't sleep last night. (laughs) Excellent. I love any good Webtoon recommendation. So Tracy and I have both recently gotten hooked on the podcast, The Magnus Archives. Oh, my God. It's so good. You guys listen to The Magnus
0: Archives. I'm mad at myself because Jamie and Tim have been telling me to listen to it for months. And I've just not done it. And now I finally right. listened to it. And I can't believe I've missed out on all these months. I could have been enjoying it.
1: It's so good. So I couldn't sleep last night and I was listening to an episode. And I had to text Tracy to give her a heads up that there was something super spooky in an episode coming up that she was not going to be down for. It hits
0: on both of my phobias somehow.
1: It uh, honestly, it got me. <laughs> And, of course, that was the one I chose when I could not sleep. What? What is wrong with me? Did you pick a random one? No, it was just the next the one. The next one. and Okay. Uh, and, by the way, I'm not going to do it on the podcast for obvious reasons, but I do have to tell you one plot point that you will need to know if you skip over this episode.
0: Thank you. Yes, I really appreciate that. But everyone should go listen to the Magnus Archives. Um... And it's so cool because it's very spooky but not scary and it's really fun because according to Jamie and Tim, as they listen to me, listen to it from the beginning, everything that you hear in the beginning that feels like it is just this one-off spooky story is very much tied into a larger story and pretty much everything that's left unexplained comes back later and becomes explained
1: Yeah, I'm already over 20 episodes in, and I just got back to L.A. So, actually, that's kind of cool. We can say this. I was just in Pennsylvania Mm -hmm. uh, for a family emergency that turned out for the best, so that's cool. But I got to spend some time with Tracy and Jamie and Tim. Yes, she got to finally see my house, you guys. I can say... 100% 100% factually on this podcast that Tracy does live in a house.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. I was afraid everyone thought I was lying about that.
1: <laughs> Tracy has a house. She lives in it. <laughs> Both of those are facts that Yay. are true. <laughs> I love your living room. I just want to live in your living room. Okay, I hate myself. I just want to make your living room my apartment.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love my living room. It's the one room I really decorated. So it's got dark green walls and gold accents and spooky decorations everywhere, like my gold plated plated chicken skull and butterflies. And that makes it sound really creepy. It's not. It's very much like a um, vintage explorer's study was the vibe I was going for. Like an apothecary meets a vintage explorer meets a 1940s psychology professor.
1: I would say I would say 1940s psychology professor is the one. I wouldn't yeah, say it's That was creepy. actually my
0: main vibe. That was actually my main it, yeah, when I say creepy I mean like I have a phrenology head um and like skull anatomy statues everywhere. Like it's very it's very dark academia, which is a thing I learned exists. <laughs> For who taught you that that exists? Rowan graciously bestowed <laughs> upon me the knowledge so kindly and and beautifully in her beautiful way that dark uh. academia exists.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, my love language just <laughs> I feel appreciated. <laughs> oh, so speaking of dark academia, Tracy, let's be dark and academic. Uh, let's host the Willing and Fable podcast, shall we?
0: <laughs> you know
1: what? I think I shall. All right. That dark, academic, intrepid explorer is Tracy Harrison. <laughs> and that... Good luck! And...
0: <laughs> and that spooky witch lady who is going to read you tarot cards and maybe make you question a few things is Rowan Hall.
1: And we, combined, are the Willing and Fable podcast, a podcast where we talk about ancient myths, local legends, and why stories have staying power. And you guys, we did it. We are (laughs) on
0: the final sin of our seven deadly sins series. The last sin we're going to be talking to you about
1: is the sin of greed. According to... DeadlySins.com, greed is the desire for material wealth or gain, ignoring the realm of the spiritual. It is also called avarice or covetousness, the punishment for which is being burned alive in oil for all eternity. Ow. I know I've been in quarantine for too long because I was like, yeah, hot oil, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> Are you okay? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Moving
0: past that, Thomas Aquinas, who I mentioned in my story about Beelzebub, wrote, Greed is a sin against God, just as all mortal sins inasmuch as a man condemns things eternal for the sake of temporal things. And in Dante's Purgatory, a story we must cover at some point on this podcast, in that story it says, The penitents are bound and laid face down on the ground for having concentrated excessively on earthly thoughts. All in all, give me the gluttony one. That sounds more bearable.
1: Eating bats?
0: Really? Eating like. As opposed to being burned alive in oil for all eternity? Yeah.
1: I'll take yucky
0: over excruciating torture.
1: I think I'm currently being bound and laid face down to concentrate on my earthly Well, that earthly one, yeah, that one I can do. That one's fine. That one's not so bad. Okay, that's just my day. <laughs> that's just what I do. <laughs> Tracy the mobster. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, my jersey came out a little bit there. I need to talk about this, because I didn't last time you mentioned him. Every time Thomas Aquinas' name comes up, I imagine a water bottle company... Called Thomas Aquinas, and the water bottle is just Thomas, and it says, like maybe has talk bubbles that say nice things to people, and the like social Thomas media the tank engine. Honestly, exactly like that, but tasting like Evian. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible! I'm never gonna be able to think of it otherwise. Wow! I haven't. Wow, Thomas the Tank Engine. That takes me way back. You said it was shaped like Thomas. I was like, what does shaped like Thomas mean? (laughs) (sighs) I've only been away from you for a wee bit, but boy, it hurts. All right. Okay, let's get started, shall we? Yes, we shall. Tracy... We did the thing where we talked about what we were going to do many, many moons ago and then never discussed it again. So remind me. On top of it, I did the thing
0: where right before writing this flip flopped a hundred times between two stories. One I had originally decided on. One I came up with last minute. And then inevitably I went back to the one I originally decided on. So. I feel like that's kind of your M.O., It is my MO. You write things at 3 a.m. I flip-flop before deciding on what to write. We all have to have a creative process.
1: Yes, it's a process. Greatness will not appear by magic. This morning,
0: I responded to Rowan at 7.45 (laughs) before jumping onto a meeting. And she answered back, which remember, she's three hours behind me. And my response to her was just, please go to sleep.
1: No, that's not what you said. You said... Please go to sleep. Thank you. Yeah, that's true. That is what I said. (laughs) (laughs) Which is, there's no room for you to not do it. And truly, I did roll over and said to myself, "Well, Tracy said so." Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then I (laughs) tried to sleep. Okay.
0: So the story I'm going to tell you today is the story of King Midas
1: and the Golden Touch. So the definitive tale of greed. This is is the definitive tale of greed. (laughs)
0: <laughs> i mean it is if you look up stories about greed it's like i mean aside from the fact that greek mythology is the only thing that ever comes up which is a whole problem on its own if you're only getting greek mythology stories when it comes to greed king midas is the one you're getting all right bring it all right so i'm going to tell the story first and then i'll go into a little bit of some history given Ooh. there's not actually that much history with king midas the story cause since it's fictional so we're just going to jump right into the story I shouldn't blame Silenus, or even Dionysus for that matter. And when I take a step back and look at the situation, I know that what happened was not their fault. But my only other option is to blame my father, and that feels harsh, given all that occurred and all that he ultimately repented for. At the very least, it all started with Silenus, who was the schoolmaster to the god Dionysus. He was an old satyr who loved wine and revelry nearly as much as the god himself, and, as to be expected, one day he went missing in a drunken stupor. His old bones carried him across the Phrygian countryside until he passed out in my father's rose garden. My father was King Midas of Phrygia, and we had a rose garden to rival any other in the world." Long, winding paths led through a garden rich with every shade of rose imaginable. The blooms were vivid in color and far more fragrant than any perfume you could imagine. Each bud was wide and full and perfectly formed with beautiful stems and thorns to match. It was my haven, my safe place, my sanctuary. So when I walked into the garden one day to see a naked, unconscious satyr in the middle of the pathway, I was immediately concerned. I wasn't sure what to do. I had never seen this creature before. However, I wasn't the first to spot him as a few servants came upon him just before me. They placed a cloak over his body and hoisted him up between them and carried him over to me. "'My lady,' they said. "'What should we do with him?' I was perplexed. What should we do with this drunken creature? Do I toss him out? But what if he had a message for us? Do I leave him in the garden? But what if he needed help? Do I let him into the castle? But what if he's here to harm us? Finally, I decided that I didn't want to decide. (laughs) Take him to my father, I said. He will choose what to do with this creature. We found my father, as he usually was, in the throne room, counting his gold. My father loved gold above all things. And sometimes, when my thoughts grew darkest, I feared he loved gold even more than me. When I was little, he would sit me down and say that all things in life are fleeting, except the gold coins in your hand, and that we should find our happiness there. I never agreed with that, but there was no convincing my father of anything once he decided he was right. He put the gold coins down on the table when we walked in, and his eyes lit up with... Excitement? That was not the emotion I expected from him. I thought he'd be confused or maybe even angry at us for disturbing him with a drunken satyr on what was an otherwise peaceful day. Instead, he leapt from his chair as the satyr began to stir and called out gleefully, "'Selenus, what a pleasant surprise to see you here in my castle!' "'Selenus was now awake from the sound of my father's booming voice, and he perked up as well. "'Midas, good to see you again. I believe I may have accidentally wandered into your garden and fell asleep?' "'My father assured him that it was no trouble, and after asking about Dionysus, offered to let Selenus stay with us for a few days.' I wish I'd known then what those few days would be like, but I was blissfully unaware of the raucous debauchery that was about to take place in my home. For ten days, the entire castle drank and danced and had a drunken good time in every way imaginable. I was not immune to the spirit of the occasion, I enjoyed myself for the first day or two, but eventually I grew tired of the partying and hid away in my garden as best I could. My father made sure that the servants provided Selenus with everything that he wanted. Food and drink, music and dance, and wine glass on wine glass was filled to the brim. I doubted my father did all of this out of the goodness of his heart, and on the eleventh day, my suspicions were confirmed. He personally took Selenus back to Dionysus and returned the satyr safely to his master. This next part I didn't see for myself, but my father told the story so many times over the next day that it is burned into my memory as if I were really there. Dionysus was so grateful to my father for not only taking in his dear friend, but also providing him with a lavish party to enjoy, that he offered my father one wish. My father could have asked for anything. The options were nearly limitless, and Dionysus warned him to think carefully, but my father knew what he wanted. He'd already planned his wish. He asked Dionysus to make everything he touched turn to gold. The god asked if my father was certain, and when he confirmed, Dionysus did as my father asked and announced that anything he should touch would become golden. Overjoyed, my father ran back to the castle to test his new skills. Outside the gate to the castle, he touched the branch of an oak tree and watched with glee as the wood quickly transformed into bright, shining gold. I was, as usual, in the rose garden when I saw my father sprinting forward. He was running his hands gleefully along the row of roses that lined the pathway, and I watched in shocked confusion as each went from its vibrant red to a bright yellow, a shimmering gold. I rushed over to look at the flowers, now hardened and stiff along the pathways. What were once bright, fragrant, beautiful flowers, fleeting in their existence, were now statues of their former selves, golden memories to the idea of what they once were. I was horrified. This was not a gift. This did not improve the state of existence for these flowers. It just turned them into trinkets. What made them special was gone, replaced by cold metal. I asked my father what he'd done, and he gleefully told me the whole story. He told me how he knew as soon as he saw Selenus that he'd be able to finally get what he always wanted. The golden touch. He called it Midas's golden touch, and he was happier than I'd ever seen him before. He rushed past me as he ran into the great hall and called out to the servants, and he demanded that they prepare a feast for the occasion. He said that it must be the most lavish and delicious feast they could imagine. Our servants, clever and talented as they were, did prepare such a feast, and in record time. So when my father and I sat down for dinner, there was more food on the table than I could even begin to take in. Roast pig with an apricot glaze, lamb drenched in fig jam, fresh bread still steaming from the oven, sweet honey tarts, vegetables soaked in salt and butter, and a platter filled with cheese, grapes, and apples. A servant poured wine into my father's goblet, and I watched him giggle with happiness as the dull metal turned to gold as his hand closed around the stem. He brought the goblet to his lips and tilted it forward to enjoy the fine vintage, when his eyes suddenly bulged wide. At first, I thought perhaps the wine had gone bad, but when he leaned forward and spat out droplets of solid gold, I knew I'd been mistaken. Even the wine, it seemed, turned to gold in his mouth. His brow furrowed. I watched as he plucked a grape from the stem and growled in frustration as it, too, turned to gold in his hand. Next, he picked up his golden fork and speared an apple slice, bringing it gently to his lips as he tried to avoid touching it with anything but his teeth. I watched in horror as this, too, turned to gold in his mouth. Curse it! He shouted, "'I can't eat anything without it turning to gold. "'What sort of gift does Dionysus call this?' "'He slammed his fork on the table and stood, "'pushing himself up with his hands flat on the surface. "'I watched the cream-colored tablecloth "'turn into shimmering sheets of gold as he did so. "'It cascaded in waves down the length of our long dining table "'until it covered every inch of the tablecloth "'that had previously been there. "'My father stormed from the hall.' I left shortly after. I thanked the servants for their hard work and bid them to eat the meal in our stead. At least someone would enjoy their hard work. I made my way over to the rose garden once more, determined to sit amongst the flowers and find a way to understand what my father had done. When I arrived at the entrance of the garden, my heart sunk deep, deep into the ground. Every single flower had been turned to gold. Each rose that had once been red as the lips of a maiden, every summer berry-colored flower, the roses that were once pale pink, white, cream, and every color under the sun were all that hated shade of yellow. Each soft petal was now hard metal, and I sunk to the ground in despair, because no longer was I surrounded by vibrant, changing beauty as... Even the fragrance had left the air. Now I was surrounded by a hard, cold, lifeless garden of statues. It was too much to bear. This gift had taken away the only thing I truly loved in this world, and I would not sit idly by any longer. I could not sit by and watch my father waste away, unable to eat or drink, surrounded by the only thing he ever truly loved his gold. I found him at the other end of the garden, holding up one of the golden roses in his hand. He didn't turn when I walked up behind him, but he did start speaking. This garden was created by your grandmother, he told me. This was a fact I already knew, but I decided it was better to stay quiet and listen than to point that out. She planted it after she and your grandfather adopted me. She told me that each flower was proof of their love for me that it would continue to bloom so long as this castle held on to that love. He let out a hollow laugh. I suppose she was right. I lost sight of what really matters and now this garden no longer blooms. He turned to face me then, his eyes locking onto mine. I could see the pain in his face as he noticed the tears that still streamed down my cheeks. My daughter, he said, reaching out his hand towards me. I admit, I lost myself in that moment. It had been so long since my father showed concern for me. I wanted his comfort more than anything else. And so I leaned forward and fell into his arms. It started at my hands. Slowly, I lost the feeling in my fingers. And then my palms. By the time I pulled away from him, my arms were golden all the way up to my elbows. I think I screamed... I'm not really sure. The process moved quickly from there, and within the blink of an eye, I felt my entire body, my legs, arms, chest, lungs, and heart turn to gold. Then nothing, just darkness. This next part you'll have to forgive me, but it's a bit vague as I was not entirely present for it. My father, horrified at what had just happened, staggered backwards. My face, once flushed with life, was now solid and frozen in gilded sadness. My father didn't waste a moment. He rushed from the castle and hurried back to Dionysus. He found the gods sitting in the woods, wineskin in hand, laughing and dancing as though the world were perfectly normal. As though Midas hadn't just lost his daughter. As though Dionysus himself hadn't saddled him with a curse instead of a gift. My father... King Midas stood before Dionysus and renounced the gift. He demanded, and then eventually begged, for it to be removed. Dionysus, understanding my father's plight, for he had predicted that this gift that Midas demanded would not turn out to be such a blessing, he told my father that to remove the gift would be quite simple. My father would need to journey to the river Pactolus and bathe himself in the river to wash off any and all traces of the gift. I'm told he carried me all the way to Sardis and onto the banks of the river Pactolus himself, though I have no memory of this time, so I cannot say for sure. Midas walked into the river and bathed himself, whispering the whole time that the gift was a mistake, that he should never have wished for the golden touch that he would give anything to have me back. I came to, falling onto the bank of the river as my legs had not fully returned to normal. I collapsed in the sand and coughed as my once solid lungs breathed air for the first time since I'd changed. I looked out at the river and saw my father standing in the center, surrounded by rich, shimmering, golden water. He ran towards me, And as soon as he was able to, he gathered me in his arms and held me close, whispering that he was sorry and that he loved me. I asked if the gift was gone, and he told me that it was, and that he was sorry he ever asked for such a foolish gift at all. The two of us sat at the top of the hill and watched the river take away the golden gift and deposit it along the shores. For as long as we lived, those shores remained brightly colored with the gold that once came from my father's hand. Everything that had been changed by my father changed back that day, and from then on, he and I would sit in the garden together and admire the colorful and fragrant flowers once more.
1: And that's the story of King Midas. I could have sworn, I could have sworn that this ended badly with the king starving, sad and alone, with everyone turned to gold around him.
0: That's one version. Um, So there's... There's so many versions. So the original version, um, and I'll talk about it a little bit in the history, doesn't have everyone around him turn to gold. The original version, there's no daughter at all. Um, mm-hmm. The Rose Garden's always there. I, I took some liberties with this telling. I played up the Rose Garden. I pl- I created the idea that it was a gift from his mother mostly so that I could put the fact in there that King Midas was the adopted child of the king and queen before him. But even in the original version, he just dies of starvation or or he repents and goes to Dionysus and begs to be forgiven. Um, and then it's in, in a later version that they add the figure of the daughter.
1: Hmm. Well, I love your version. It's beautiful and quite wholesome I tried so hard to make it end sad. I was like, I need to,
0: I need to make it. I think I, mid writing it, I was like, how am I going to end this? Like it should end with the daughter remaining a statue, but it just didn't feel right. Like I, I, because there's so many versions of the story where Dionysus shows him how to reverse the Mm. gift and a fun fact is that part of this story is that it explains why the banks of the, the actual river Pactolus are covered in gold deposits. Oh. I just thought it was too cool to, to not have. And so if he was going to remove the gift, then his daughter had to come back. So then I gave it a wholesome ending.
1: There's no reason why it should have a sad ending. It is possible to be a flawed human being and learn about it and then do better. And in a myth, it's just even cooler because there's always magic and gods and exciting stuff. I'm into it. I am especially into (laughs) the description of listening to this girl's feel her organs becoming metal.
0: Yeah, that was fun. I I wanted to make it feel a little bit visceral. And also, can you tell I was really hungry when I was talking about the feast?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, I was only paying attention to how hungry I am right now. (laughs) (laughs) I added in the apricot glaze for you. I felt that. Thank you. (laughs)
0: Um, so, I can tell you a little bit more about the history of uh, King Midas because food does come into play at some point. Ooh, please. So, before we get to the food, the story of King Midas was part of the Dionysiac cycle of legends first elaborated in the burlesques of the Athenian satyr plays. To quote Wikipedia, as I always do, satyr plays were an ancient Greek form of tragic comedy, similar in spirit to the body satire of burlesque. They featured choruses of satyrs, were based on Greek mythology, and were rife with mock drunkenness, brazen sexuality, including phallic props, pranks, sight gags, and general merriment. Satiric drama is one of the three varieties of Athenian drama, the other two being tragedy and comedy.
1: I feel like a dunce that I even have to ask this, but would I be correct that satire has a root in... Sater, or was that just a dreadful pronunciation adventure for you? I have no idea. I was really hoping you'd know the answer to that,
0: given your theta no, no, background. No,
1: no, don't make this about my college <laughs> education.
0: <laughs> that is a great question. I don't know. I'll have to look that up. I think possibly because um you know it's a mocking comedy, making fun of like all of the insanity of the Greek com- comedic. I don't know. It, it was based on greek mythology but it's kind of almost making fun of it with the mock drunkenness and everything so it quite
1: possibly there's definitely a listener who is screaming
0: screaming driving <laughs> down in their car just yelling that's me i'm usually that person so
1: <laughs> exactly me too all right so okay sorry i apologize i, I wanted okay. to know
0: but now i don't want to know great question and i don't have an answer so the story of King Midas was popularized by Ovid in Metamorphosis 6. It tells the original story of the Golden Touch, and in this version, Midas repents his wish, and he removes the curse after he grows hungry. In some versions, he instead starves to death. It's the 1852 version written by Nathaniel Hawthorne in his book A Wonder Book for Girls and Boys that the daughter is first introduced as the reason for Midas repenting. So I kind of combined both versions.
1: I've noticed in our research that in the 1800s, things in story either get real friendly and child appropriate or just get real dark. Yeah. There's no middle yeah. ground.
0: There's no in between. It's either like very light and fun or sun, moon, and Talia.
1: A wonder book for girls and boys. Or... <laughs>
0: Or murder. Or or murder. (laughs) So what I didn't add into mine, but what some other versions of the story also say is that Midas shares all of his wealth with his entire kingdom. But that felt like too much of a turnaround for the character for me to put in my story.
1: That doesn't feel like it rings true to what's going on in our present day. Exactly.
0: So now for some fun archaeology facts. Yes. (laughs) this comes from uh, an article on ancient.eu it is possible that the mythical figure of midas was based on a real king of phrygia in the 8th century bce known as mita mita or midas made offerings to delphi the first foreign monarch to do so a skeleton discovered in the tomb mounds outside gordium the phrygian capital has been tentatively attributed to mita by some scholars.
1: We need to talk about golden skeletons for just one second. Oh, oh my god, yeah, more than one second, please. So at the end of my block, there's this... I don't even know what to call it. It's kind of just an unusual knick-knack, antique, what-have-you store. And nearly every day, the wonderful guy who works there brings out... A golden human skeleton. I think the skeleton part is fake, but it is plated in real gold. That is amazing. I think it's illegal to like
0: have human skeletons or human remains. Is
1: it? I think you can buy people remains on the internet. I don't mean, I'm just. let me just clarify, I don't mean, like, a lopped-off arm. I think you can buy bones that were a human. I think that's technically illegal. I hope it's fake, because I want this thing so bad. And it is exorbitantly priced, as, you know, a person-sized lump of gold would be. Oh, of course. But can you imagine... Oh, so cool. I
0: mean, again, my aesthetic, it would fit perfectly in a golden skeleton among my gold decor and skeletons
1: in my living room. The dream. So I only imagine this skeleton that was possibly discovered to be maybe Midas as just being fully gold. So I can tell you a little bit more about him. Uh, This is a
0: quote from Wikipedia. And after this, I'm going to talk about an article from University of Pennsylvania. In 1957, Rodney Young and a team from the University of Pennsylvania opened a chamber tomb at the heart of the Great Tumulus, on the site of ancient Gordian, where there are more than 100 tumuli of different sizes and from different periods. They discovered a royal burial, its timbers dated as cut to about 740 BC, complete with remains of the Funeral Feast and the best collection of Iron Age drinking vessels ever uncovered. On the remains of a wooden coffin in the northwest corner of the tomb lay a skeleton of a man, about 60 years old. In the tomb were found an ornate inlaid table, two inlaid serving stands, and eight other tables, as well as bronze and pottery vessels and bronze fibulae. Although no identifying texts were originally associated with the site, it is called Tumulus M.M., For Midas Mound. This was named by the excavator. As this funerary monument was erected before the traditional date given for the death of King Midas in the early 7th century BC, it is now generally thought to have covered the burial of his father. So my last fun history fact is about ancient alcohol and food. According to researchers at the Penn Museum, this is the story of experimental archaeology, which is essentially trying to replicate ancient methods or techniques using the knowledge we have today. That is very cool. Oh, I love it. So many cool things. There's a channel on YouTube called Absolute History that has three people who do experimental archaeology. And I'm going to plug one thing real quick. In France, they are building a 13th century castle from scratch using only 13th century techniques. It's called Get Along Castle, and it you can visit it today. And it's a 25-year-long experimental archaeology project.
1: Ah, uh, See, I know I've been locked in quarantine for too long because the first thought was, well, that place definitely has no indoor plumbing. Why was that my first thought? A, obviously, <laughs> and B, who cares? They're building a castle. It's amazing. You can
0: watch the process of some of it on YouTube. But anyway... That's just another cool experimental experimental archaeology fact, but thank you Indiana Jones. See, Indiana Jones was just a really cool archaeologist. He wasn't an experimental archaeologist. You <laughs> My cat is so unbelievably passed out on my lap right now, so I apologize if you hear purring, but it would be cruel of me to disturb her. <laughs> so, Um, This is the story about using experimental archaeology to learn about King Midas and create an award-winning beer. So here's a long quote composed of different parts of an article titled The Funerary Banquet of King Midas by P.E. McGovern of the University of Pennsylvania. When the Penn Museum excavators cut through the wall, they were brought face to face with an amazing sight like Howard Carter's first glimpse into Tutankhamun's tomb. The excavators first saw the body of a 60- to 65-year-old male who had died normally. He lay on a thick pile of blue and purple-dyed textiles, the colors of royalty in the ancient Near East. In the background, you will see what really got us excited. The largest Iron Age drinking set ever found. Some 157 bronze vessels, including large vats, jugs, and drinking bowls, that were used in the final farewell dinner outside the tomb. Like an Irish wake, the king's popularity and successful reign were celebrated by feasting and drinking. The body was then lowered into the tomb, along with the remains of the food and drink, to sustain him for eternity, or at least the last 2,700 years. <laughs> All of the ideas about what our ancient ancestors were drinking, whether a wine, beer, or mead, come together in our research on the so-called King Midas funerary feast, because surprisingly, all three were mixed together in the drink. The gala recreation of the feast in 2000 was at the Penn Museum. Based on the chemical evidence, a spicy, barbecued lamb and lentil stew, according to our chemical findings, was the entree, and it was washed down with a delicious Midas-touched drink. It was the first reconstruction of a burial feast based solely on the chemical evidence. In fact, the bronze drinking vessels, including spectacular lion-headed and ram-headed buckets or cituli for serving the beverage, gleamed just like the precious metal, once the bronze corrosion was removed. But the real gold, as far as I was concerned, was what these vessels contained. And many of them still contained the remains of an ancient beverage, which was intensely yellow just like gold. What then did these vessels contain? Chemical analysis of the residues teasing out the ancient molecules provided the answer. I won't go into all the details of our analysis in the interest of the chemically challenged, but we were able to identify the fingerprint or marker compounds for specific natural products. These included tartaric acid, the fingerprint compound for grapes in the Middle East, which, because of yeast on the skins of some grapes, will naturally ferment to wine, especially in a warm climate. The marker compounds of beeswax told us that one of the constituents was high-sugar honey, since beeswax is well-preserved and almost impossible to completely filter out during the processing. Honey also contains yeast that will cause it to ferment to mead, Finally, calcium oxalate, or beer stone, pointed to the presence of barley beer. In short, our chemical investigation of the intense, yellowish residue inside the vessel showed that the beverage was a highly unusual mixture of grape wine, barley beer, and honey mead. You may cringe at the thought of mixing together wine, beer, and mead as I did originally, but we had come up with a very intriguing beverage that we needed some enterprising brewers to try to reverse engineer— And Sam Calagione of Dogfish Head Brewery ultimately triumphed. Starting in 2000, Midas Touch has gone on to be the most awarded of any dogfish brew, having garnered three gold medals, appropriately enough, in major tasting competitions to date, along with five silvers and a few bronzes tossed in for good measure. So, that is the story of how Experimental Archaeology created Dogfish Head Midas Touch beer.
1: Wow! I had no idea. I am very much not interested in drinking beer, but I would love to at least taste that. Just to taste Yeah, it's bit. so funny. I was so excited about learning
0: that. I went to Tim and I was like, oh, I was like, they're talking about archaeology and they made this. And he was like, yeah, you know, Dogfish Head made a beer about that. And I was like, way to ruin the punchline.
1: Are <laughs> you joking?
0: Oh, my oh yeah. Gosh. He already knew about it. He is Google. <laughs> I swear. He, he is human history Google.
1: All right, well, next time you do a story like this, I'm going to need you to provide
0: food and drink for tasting purposes. Okay, I'll just mail it over to you.
1: I mean, where's the problem? <laughs> yeah. Mm. Mm, gross. So even though your story is very much about greed, it has a character who learns to be better, and we get all this fun history out of it. So I'm going to mm-hmm. say... It was temporary minor greed. Mostly because the daughter got to live.
0: Okay. Yeah, I can agree with that. He It was greed until he learned better and learned that his
1: love was in the wrong place. I say we're not going to boil him in oil for all of eternity. I'm okay with that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so any other questions about King Minus? No, I, I think you pretty much covered it i really am now gonna have to hunt down this beer just because i want to know what experimental archaeology has provided for us but link it in the show notes i'll link it in the show notes (laughs) thank you good job tracy thank you Rowan.
0: so now Mm -hmm. why don't you tell me a story
1: once upon a time on the coast of the east There was the most fantastic woman that ever lived, Tracy Harrison. So flattering. Oh, I love it. Keep telling the story. And she sent a diamond jewelry care package to the most wonderful woman of the West, Rowan Hall. How did she do it? She went on to diamondjewelry.com
0: and saw that they were selling care packages. They only started at $25, so she thought this is too good to be true. She told them all about Rowan and how amazing she is, and they created the custom care package of her dreams. These packages can include anything
1: from candies, scarves, books, puzzles, candles, and so much more. If you, trepid adventurer, want to be wonderful and amazing like Tracy Harrison, all you have to do is go to diamondjewelry.com. That's D-I-A-M-E-N-T jewelry.com. Or head to Diamond Jewelry on Instagram. But wait... We have a mystical, magical coupon code for you, fearless adventurer. Use code WillingAndFable10. That's
0: WillingAndFable with the number 10 at the end to get 10% off of your order at Diamond Jewelry. So go Sally forth. Ooh, Sally
1: forth is good. <laughs> so sally forth to the wild world of the internet and be cool like Tracy Harrison and Diamond Jewelry. <laughs> Okay, my story today, like many tales of greed, begins with a contract and a falsehood. The year is 1512, and intrepid Spanish colonizer Juan Ponce de Leon has been contracted by good King Ferdinand to settle the islands of the quote, New World. After all, Ponce de Leon had accompanied Christopher Columbus, who was by now on his second expedition to conquer the hemisphere. In 1504, Ponce de Leon crushed a local rebellion in Hispaniola, and in 1508, he received royal permission to colonize what is now Puerto Rico. Using only one ship and 50 soldiers, he accrued a whole lot of gold for the Spanish crown, and was the island's governor until Columbus's son Diego came along and messed that all up for him. Regardless, Ponce is doing well for himself. In 1512, as a consolation prize, King Ferdinand offered him exclusive, lifelong governorship to any land he came across. Oh, the- poor Ponce. Oh, Poncey boy, so sad. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's just like, oh, poor boy, you get to steal this land away from anyone you want.
0: All right, I'm done. Continue. I'm sorry.
1: No, no, no. This is exactly the mood that we're in for this. So (laughs) you just stay there. The contracts these two men exchanged were specific. They described how gold would be divided and how any people native to the lands would be forced into Spanish colonial rule. When Ponce de Leon set sail in March 1513 with three ships and over 200 men, he did so at his own cost, knowing the rewards. Land, wealth, and colonial power. Not to mention the chance to spread Christianity all over the new world. They didn't have any religions, right? They weren't
0: already worshipping anything, so seems like a good move. I'm sorry, I'll be nicer. (laughs) No, don't. No, no, no. No, no, no. You... Okay, continue to be mean to the colonizers who destroyed people they came across. Can do.
1: I'll let you know when it's time to be nice. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to know why when this story is told today, Ponce de Leon's name is synonymous with the search for the fountain of youth and its possible discovery in Florida. Because out of all of the historical evidence surrounding this expedition, of which there is a fair amount, the fountain is mentioned not one single time in either his or the King's correspondence. Seriously? I feel like he is so synonymous with searching for the fountain of youth. I'm about to wreck your public school education, my friend. Oh, go for it. Teach me. (laughs) So, let's talk about the Fountain of Youth. The idea is that somewhere in the world, there's a magical spring that restores youth to anyone who drinks or bathes in its waters. Like many of the world's finest stories, there is art galore of this act. You've probably seen the 2011 movie Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides, in which a host of beautiful but dirty Hollywood movie stars kill each other to get to this mythical water. But the origins of this story go back further than you think. People have believed in the healing power of water forever. Forever. We come from a watery womb. We need to drink water to live. Much of our food comes from water. Natural springs can contain some of the minerals we need to live. Water is pretty much our thing as human beings. It is believed that the earliest documented writings about any such fountain came from the Greek historian Herodotus in the 5th century BC. He really liked to exaggerate some stuff that guy. Oh Just yeah. He really liked. He
0: was more about a good story than a true story, you know.
1: Honestly, my whole story today is we're here for a good story not a true story. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. All right, let's let's keep going. So Herodotus placed his magical find in the land of the Macrobians and he described the people who lived there as having exceptionally long lifespans. In the 4th century AD, Alexander the Great took up the search and is said to have arrived at a, quote, river of paradise. Then, during the Crusades in the 11th and 12th centuries AD, King Prester John made bold claims that he ruled land that had a fountain of youth. Japan has stories of healing hot springs that draw tourists and locals to this day. From Polynesia to England, stories of a fountain of youth are pretty universal. And then, of course, we have the stories that are said to have come from the Caribbean islands in the 16th century. Locals there seem to have described healing waters on the island of Bimini. So, back to Ponce de Leon. To quote J. Michael Francis, a history professor at the University of South Florida, St. Petersburg, what Ponce is really looking for is islands that will become part of what he hopes will be a profitable new governorship. From everything I can gather, he was not at all interested or believed that he would find some kind of miraculous spring or lake or body of water. At the time of Ponce's sailing, King Ferdinand did have a hot new wife who was 35 years younger than him. So it's possible that he mentioned this to his industrious conqueror before the expedition, saying, hello, please find me Eternal Youth. My wife is super gorgeous. Kay, thanks, bye. (laughs) Mm, Gross. But it is way more likely that this story is one giant historical troll. Here for a good time, not a long time. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> I'm here for an exciting time, not a true time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Spaniards of the era did such a good job trolling Ponce back then that in the 1800s, after the Spanish ceded Florida, Washington Irving picked up the fountain story and ran with it
0: the same Washington Irving who wrote the Rip Van Winkle story from our Sloth episode.
1: Exactly. Episode four. (laughs) So seriously, the whole Fountain of Youth thing was a rumor started to make Ponce de Leon look bad after his death. Whoa,
0: that's super effective. (laughs) (laughs) It's the same thing of how Napoleon wasn't actually short. It was a rumor started by the English to make him look bad. They started a rumor campaign that he was really short to mess with him, and it worked.
1: Well, can confirm Ponce de Leon was four foot 11, so. (gasps) Are you serious? This is true fact. Oh my God. According to my research. (laughs) You buried the lead. (laughs) Well, no, you know, I, I. I have so many. Tiny boy. Tiny little boy. He's a sweet baby, except he was a murder, horrible baby. We, we Tiny little murder baby. Tiny baby murder boy.
0: Okay, sorry. Keep going. All
1: right. To quote Ryan K. Smith, a history professor at Virginia Commonwealth University, he was being discredited as an idiot and weakling. This is machismo culture in Spain at the height of the Counter-Reformation. Among many who linked Ponce with the fountain was, and I'm so sorry in advance for my pronunciation, Gonzalo Fernandez de Oviedo y Valdez. This man was aligned with Christopher Columbus's son Diego when he took the governorship of Puerto Rico, so there's political gain to making Ponce appear super silly. In his writing... Historia General y Natural de las Indias. He tells of Ponce going off in search of the healing waters of Bumini after being fooled by Caribbean natives. Antonio de Herrera y Tordesillas, who was the Spanish king's chief historian of the Indies, also got in on the action. In 1601, he wrote a very popular story describing Ponce de Leon's first voyage to Florida. Herrera only mentions the fountain briefly, saying that it turned, quote, old men to boys. Ooh, worst way. Worst way to describe that. Ooh, gross. (laughs) Gross, gross. (laughs) So his status as a historian pretty much set this narrative in stone. I also want to throw out there, I heard that this story was also brought about in conjunction with the idea that Ponce needed the Fountain of Youth because he was very bad at fathering children. Hmm. He had, I believe, four children, so I think he was doing okay, but... Yeah, he seems all right. This is the rumor mill. So we now know that this giant Spanish smear campaign backfired in the end. Ponce de Leon died at the age of 47 after being shot... In 1521 on the Gulf Coast, he was shot in the thigh by a fishbone arrowhead, and the wound festered until he died of it in Cuba. But his hunt for the Fountain of Youth is still taught in schools. It is printed in textbooks as fact. So you could argue that while he did not achieve eternal youth, he did sort of achieve immortality. So what started out as a greedy, murderous land grab became one of the most prideful, fantastically epic fails of the colonizing world. This man, quote, discovered an already populated peninsula, decided it was an island called Florida... Through multiple trips and expeditions, he ensured that the people who already lived there would be killed, converted, and given diseases like smallpox. And he did this all while funneling tons of wealth to the Spanish crown across the ocean. But he is most well-known for not finding a mythical fountain that he wasn't even looking for. So you could say he kind of, like, failed successfully. Um... I think you could say that sometimes fiction prevails more than truth because everyone likes a good story and the reality of colonization is horrible. Yeah, you could say all of those things. Those things are accurate. So speaking of good stories. (sighs) Okay. Tell me a story. So, for my story today, I'm actually going to perpetuate the myth of Ponce de Leon's quest for the Fountain of Youth for just a moment longer. <laughs> um, as many historians have said before me, it is a very romantic idea. There is a reason why this tale lasted. Like I said, I imagine that that is in part because it is way more comfortable to couch Ponce de Leon as a fool who couldn't find a mythical fountain than deal with the reality of Spanish colonialism. Uh, During my reading this week, I learned a little bit about the complicated lives of the Spanish soldiers during this time. Like the convicts forced to fight wildfires in California without adequate protection right now, many soldiers during the 16th century were criminals press-ganged into this quest to the New World. Others were young men who may have bought into a number of stories, not the least of which would be exploration or even just a steady meal and reliable work. In reading about the nuances of this particularly dark history, I often wonder what choice these soldiers might make if things were different for them or if resources were more accessible. But I have a feeling that that's my own vain hope in the fundamental goodness of real people. (laughs) Regardless, my story today. Amy Loudy recording. First year intern to Dr. S.D. March, um, December 12th, 1976. The following documents are believed to come from a young Spanish soldier traveling with Ponce de Leon. The pages were found in the belongings of Dr. Luella Day, 1870 to 1927. They were composed on scraps of parchment, bundled together in a bit of twine. It is my assumption that the twine was Luella's, and I haven't access to the dating on the paper. The inks run in various places due to waterlogging. I'm not surprised. If this collection's appearance in the box of encyclopedias is any indication, no one's kept particular care of them until Dr. March began storing them in his own collection. I'll do my best to translate the Spanish so it sounds, um, well, like I passed Spanish 3 in school. Uh Anyway, (laughs) here we go. March 6th. 1513. Mother, the sun is shining today and everyone is in high spirits. You would never believe the sight of the ocean stretching out in all directions. I wake up from deep sleep some nights to the ship's rock. I fear in my dreaming that we have fallen over the edge of the world. A man... I do not know his name. Not much of a talker, that one. But he got everyone singing over our morning bread today. It was a song I did not know, but it was easy enough to pick up at the chorus. <laughs> she is sweet as summer and soft as cream. She's the sailor's lover who comes only in a dream. <laughs> oh, I'll note here. The person who wrote this scribbled out the lyrics, but they're still legible. And... Of course, I don't know the proper tune. March 14th, 1513. Mother, I wanted to tell you I'm teaching a few of the men to read. I am one of the few who can. You were right. I sail with a no-good lot of low-down criminals. But I do not want you to worry. They are good, I think, just hungry like many of us, and... I do not think everyone has someone to write home to. I know you will never read these, at least not until I am home. But it does help to imagine our family. When I arrive on the shores of these new lands, I will take inventory of every rock and tree and leaf, so I might tell you. I will be one of the first civilized men upon these shores, and I will have a bit of land just for us. I will learn to farm, and you will be healthy in this wet heat. It is hot. I know that you will like this place we discover. March 18th, 1513. Mother, a few men have taken to calling me kid I do not object, I feel that such whining might prove their point. (laughs) They thought they had sighted land in the crow's nest today. Everyone was in an uproar of excitement and Juan Ponce de Leon came running from his quarters with his maps fluttering in the wind. He could not understand it, he cried that we are much too far to see it now. They drug the man from the nest. I don't know where they took him but now a more seasoned sailor stands guard high above. I don't know how one sailor's senses might be better than another's as long as they have eyes to see. Have not we all seen land before? God, please let it be soon. March 19th, 1513. Mother, he was wrong. We remain at sea. Then there's an entry on a particularly small scrap. I don't know the date. It says, um... He is not tall. He only reaches up to my shoulder. But he stands in his stout breastplate with plumage extending from his helmet to the high heavens. He is never without a feathered hat or helm of some sort. Perhaps he believes this is how God can see him among the rest of the rabble but I think the feathers are meant to make him seem tall. No one is fooled. Still, I hear he is in possession of a particularly beautiful wife, so he must be doing something correctly. I would never go to see if I had a beautiful woman waiting for me on shore. April 3rd, 1513. Mother, we are here. This land, Juan Ponce de Leon christened it La Florida. It is the land of flowers we come upon this Easter season. As they navigated the boat to the coastline, I ceased my work for a moment and looked out at the green, new world. There were people on the shore as we got closer, and the captain prepared us to fight as we drew near. I hoped they would see the power of our ship and turn to run, but they did not. Every sailor ran out in a fury of bodies and pent-up fear. It was so short, mother, you would not believe everyone was dead before I even had the chance to raise a blade. I should not say. If someone reads this, I could be punished or put to death, I would think. But I need to tell you, I... Here there's one of those aforementioned smudges. It could be blood. It does have a rusty color to it. But I hate to be dramatic. It's very likely water and sediment. I won't bother with the rest of the page. The ink's too ruined to read. Uh, All right. May 5th, 1513. Oh, I should say, this next paper's really been through the ringer, too. Crumpled to hell and back. Dirty. But legible, all of it. There's also a cross drawn in the margin. Well, more scratched in the margin, I would say. Um, okay, uh, May 5th, 1513. Please, God, do not let me die. Please, God, do not let me die. Please, God, do not let me die. I am sorry. I am sorry. I am so sorry. Please, God, do not let me die here. Well, you get the idea. It repeats in roughly that pattern, um, six more times. May 7th, 1513 Mother, we go on the quest of a madman. In the deep, swampy forest of this Florida, we journey further and further from hope. Juan Ponce de Leon drives us into the darkness in search of a fountain that will grant youth or or immortality, I'm not sure. I thought, certainly, it was a jest when I first heard it making way through the ranks. Carlos told me, and I nearly laughed at him, how could we come across the sea in search of a child's tail? But word of this hunt pervades the camp and sickens the army so that it is like a beast with fever. At first, the march seemed slower. As if we all thought we could call off the search, if we did not shuffle forward too far, it might be easier to return to the sunny shores and the village in which we have made camp. But they yelled, and punished the slowest marching men until the sickness morphed into a mania among us all. Mother, they are beginning to believe that we will find this fountain. The stories grow each day so that I wonder where each teller first got their information. How could I not know? Am I really so much of a kid? It is dark and hot. The natives come and attack us or we go after them. I've killed so many men. And a woman. I wanted to say I did not realize until it was too late that I would not harm the fairer sex, but I knew, and I also heard my own voice echo through me, if you do not kill her, she will kill you. Looking over her slumped body after the skirmish ended, I believe that this is the logic of soldiering. It must be the way we keep our feet marching and our blades slashing, I do not think this is any wisdom, and even identifying it does not change how I will act. I will not die on this stinking island at the hands of godless warriors. The men's wounds do not heal. The wet air and putrid muck keeps them open and festering. I fear that my toes will blacken and fall off if I do not get my boots dry soon. I saw it on an older man two nights ago. He removed his shoe by the campfire, and some soft, dark ball rolled out into the dirt. It was his big toe, mother. Blackened with death and decay. He is now fervent for the fountain, that man— I do not believe it will grant him his digits, even if it will grant him his youth. I hate this man for making us march for a myth. I hate the natives for killing my friends. I hate this country and the ship that ferried us here. Where once I hated myself for not killing, I now hate myself for killing too slowly. Yes, perhaps... Perhaps if I charge ahead, march more quickly, and move through these plains of hell, I will come home sooner. I cannot help but wonder, should we discover this treasure? Will the captain grant us a taste? May 9th, 1513. The water in this damned place tastes like the pits of hell bubbling up. It smells like rotten eggs and feels thick as it slides down my throat. I do not believe there is a fountain of youth in this new world. If it is here, I would not drink from its fetid waters. May 12th, 1513. Mother, this is the last of my ink. I ceased marching many hours ago, and the sunset lengthens the shadows around me. I am dead, Mother. Stabbed through by some barbarous spear in my side, and oh God, it hurts. I cannot take another step. Will you tell me why any man would fight and die for this wet patch of rotten muck, why do we not let them have it? Uh, here's another scrap. It's undated. The fountain is here. I found the fountain of youth. It filled in the night after the rains. I pleaded with God for salvation, and he brought the fountain to me here. The the frogs and tadpoles and the flies with maggots and the soldier all drink from the same small fountain at my feet, and if only he could see, he would turn them back. I found the fountain. I will lie in it so that they may find me on their quest. When they turn around, I will wail like a kid so they hear, I do not want to die, mother. That's it. That's the last one. Ta da!
0: Whoa! (laughs) That was so cool. You can really feel the influence of the Magnus Archives. I was just gonna say, this is my (laughs)
1: tribute to my new obsession with the Magnus Archives.
0: (laughs) So good, though. I love the way that you told that. Um, God, and it was just so dark. And in a way that felt, you know, like gritty and real.
1: Yeah, by the end of my research, aside from Ponce de Leon and King Ferdinand and the powers that be, there wasn't a single run-of-the-mill human on the lands of Florida that I did not pity. Oh, I yeah. think every single person was just worse for it. <laughs> it, it.
0: Yeah, and that sums up, like, the greed of the people leading, making it— just a miserable experience for everyone else who doesn't have that choice
1: so to make up for my sad story in the past (laughs) i'm gonna bring everybody back to the future because it is not america without a theme park and this is a story about greed so tracy i now present to you capitalism yay There are a few locations that claim to be the actual definitive Fountain of Youth in Florida, but I want to focus on one in particular. Tracy, I bring to you the Fountain of Youth Archaeological Park, where for the cost of $18 for one adult between the hours of 9 a.m. and 6 p.m. daily, you can take a drink in the spring house, see a historically accurate mission, visit with some peacocks, explore a planetarium and a globe exhibit see a blacksmith, and eat barbecue. Honestly, many of those things sound very fun. Okay. (laughs) Mostly eating barbecue
0: and um, seeing a blacksmith. I like, you know, I think blacksmithing is cool. Uh, I like planetariums.
1: (laughs) It just seems like the most intriguing amalgam of things. Oh, it's weird. It's a weird combo, and I'm sure none of them are very
0: good. Like, You can't have that wide-ranging amount of things and have them all be very, very good
1: you know? Right. And there's more. There are a few exhibits centered around the Timucuan Native American villages that existed in the area long before and while wow, the Spanish came and colonized it. I was particularly interested to learn that a burial site discovered within the park in 1934 by a gardener had a number of Native American human remains estimated anywhere between 104,000. Wow, wide range. <laughs> to quote the Park Zone website, as the years passed, increasing sensitivity to the customs and culture of Native Americans prompted the December 1991 reinternment of the remains, together with a full, solemn Catholic Mass.
0: What was the reasoning for a Catholic Mass?
1: It is my understanding that this area marks one of the first places that the quote-unquote converted Native Americans were being buried in the Spanish Christian style. Okay, that makes sense. I also read that this 1991 reburial was performed at the behest of the Timucua Nation, but I only found that information from one source, and it is a source that I would not stake my life on. Either way, should you choose to visit, you will find the burial site, as well as a reconstructed portion of the town of Seloy. An interesting anecdote about the park that is much more cheery. Um, The name in my story, Dr. Luella Day, That is a real woman who purchased the property in 1900. Yes, you heard me correctly. She was a female doctor in 1900. On top of that, she gave up her entire practice to go to Alaska during the gold rush. She came back a rich woman with the nickname Diamond Lil. And supposedly, she had a diamond in in one of her front teeth. To commemorate her own awesomeness, yeah, oh my God, so cool. I want to meet that person. Yeah, she sounds really punk
0: rock. Diamond Lil. she seems like she would just like call it like it is, you know. like just be really brazen, really straightforward, shoot from the hip.
1: <laughs> I'm sure she literally shot from the hip. Yeah, yeah, I meant that <laughs> I meant that literally and metaphorically. So Tracy, I also bring you science. I love science! (laughs) So, if you, Tracy, maybe, and the dear listeners are now going, I want the fountain of youth, there are simple prescription and over-the-counter options to make you appear younger. They are called retinoids, and they are one of the most highly researched skincare ingredients touted by dermatologists as being the most effective anti-aging topical. According to WebMD... Retinoids work by prompting surface skin cells to turn over and die rapidly, making way for new cell growth underneath. They hamper the breakdown of collagen and thicken the deep layer of the skin where wrinkles get their start. But unfortunately, having great skin isn't the same thing as never aging. So we go further into science by turning to the animal kingdom. The only species known to be, quote, biologically immortal, is the Turritopsis dohrnii, or the immortal jellyfish. Though it's definitely out of the game if a predator has it for a snack, this amazing little swimmer can respond to environmental stressors by reverting back to the early stages of its life cycle, which is actually just a mush of cells that attaches to a surface. And then... you
0: truly did not expect to learn about jellyfish or retinoids today talking about greed, but I'm grateful to have
1: learned these things. I like to keep you on your toes. I love it. (laughs) Keep me guessing. So there are other creatures like hydras, lobsters, salamanders, and more that offer the scientific community other clues into cell regeneration. Salamanders can regenerate tails and limbs. Lobsters will just continue to grow until their body can no longer support how massive they are. It's all pretty awesome. Scientists are going for DNA manipulation, cell regeneration. It's all exciting. It has not yet resulted in a bubbling fountain of eternal youth. (laughs) Not yet. And Tracy, this is my most favorite piece of information that I learned in this entire research. We go now to an empty intersection in Punta Gorda. Another Florida town that claims to have a miraculous Fountain of Youth. To quote Sam Anderson, writing for the New York Times, I saw it and I laughed out loud. The Fountain of Youth was tiny, shabby, and neglected. A blocky little drinking fountain not much bigger than the garbage can it stood next to, covered in green tile that must have been decorative 90 years ago, but was now cracked and stained. Today, nothing identified it as the Fountain of Youth. In fact, the only sign on it was a warning from the Florida Department of Health. Quote, Use water at your own risk. The water from this well exceeds the maximum contaminant levels for radioactivity as determined by the United States Environmental Protection Agency under the Safe Drinking Water Act.
0: That feels like the only true appropriate fountain of youth based on the story of Ponce de Leon.
1: I screamed aloud when I read <laughs> that article and it was very late at night. I'm sure I horrified my neighbor Oh, my God. Sam Anderson's article is so good. Check out the show notes, because if you think it's funny that we have now contaminated what could have been the Fountain of Youth, (laughs) you're going to love the rest of his adventure in trying to find the fountain. Very 2020 energy. That man went to Florida on a quest for the Fountain of Youth, and he decided while he was there, he was only going to drink water that came from a purported Fountain of Youth. Which is unfortunate for him because this one was radioactive and another one was sulfurous and smelled like rotten eggs. Ooh, that's terrible. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we did the story thing. We did the story thing. But we have an extra bonus thing that I'm so excited about. Yes, me too. We get to shout out our first ever patreon patrons on our podcast oh my gosh it's so exciting we have actual patrons you guys are incredible
0: i can't believe how supportive you are it just warms my tiny little heart so much
1: so yeah guys a huge thank you because we love chatting with you on discord we love the messages that we've received on patreon we're so excited for what you vote on for spooky season we've gotten a scary story from one of our patrons the other day i'm gonna quote tracy chef's kiss everyone (laughs) chef's kiss we love it (laughs) so thank you to our patrons jeremiah y daphne o shane r emily j Helena R., Mark O., Kenneth L., and Michael T. We could not make this podcast without you guys. Thank you so much.
0: And another fun thing. We did this once before and we wanted to do it again because it also warms our tiny little hearts. We want to redo a review that we like. So if you take the time to go onto Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and a review, there's a chance we'll read it on the podcast. So try to make it as funny and fun as you can.
1: Mm, okay. So what did someone say about us that's nice, Tracy? All right. What'd you pull? This is from Jay Kazzy.
0: Such charming and engaging storytelling. I love these ladies and their wry humor. The segments are super engaging and informative, and the positive endings to every episode brightens my day.
1: Thank you. Do you hear that, Tracy? You are charming and engaging, and you brighten someone's day. Did you hear
0: that, Rowan? You have wry humor.
1: (laughs) I already knew that. (laughs)
0: So thank you so much for leaving that review. It means the world to us, and you have no idea how much it helps us, you guys. Just taking, like, one or two minutes to leave a review and a rating on iTunes, like, makes an incredible impact on our podcast and um, on our lives.
1: Yeah, thank you. Uh, So while we're talking about good stuff, Tracy, tell me something good.
0: Okay, mine's going to be real quick. Um, I had a really delicious dinner. (laughs) <laughs> That's my something good. So Jamie and Tim together made this quiche, and I will include it in um, our recommended page or our show notes. Um, she sent me the recipes because I was like ranting and raving about it before we recorded. Oh no,
1: are we going to and... have to have a recipes section on our recommended page? Mm-hmm. We are. That yes. will be purely, purely curated by Tracy, unless you want to know how to yes. buy dinosaur chicken nuggets.
0: so it was just really good and and jamie like made the dough herself and tim helped her cook it and it was a mushroom onion spinach and cheese quiche i normally don't really like quiche i'm not a big egg person i ate the biggest slice you could ever imagine and it was amazing and i'm going to share the recipe with everyone because i really try to make my something goods be something good for you guys as well so i will share the recipe to this amazing quiche it's two recipes one for the crust and one for the actual
1: Keesh. Jamie is on a roll. She made homemade bread and homemade ricotta the other day. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, so good. I love living with Jamie and Tim. And Tim's just an incredible cook all around. I've never had Tim food. It's very good. He's someone who, like, doesn't need recipes. He just kind of cooks from the heart.
1: Every time I see Tim, we always have Mexican food, which Tim hates. So that's very funny that the one food I ever eat with him is a food that is not his favorite. It's because I know that
0: um, I know that I can have Mexican food when you're here. <laughs>
1: oh my gosh! All I so, ever
0: want. <laughs> tell me something good, Rowan.
1: Well, my something good is not actually something that I can really share with other people. So <laughs> you get it from Tracy, not from me. Um, <laughs> I am feeling so so incredibly grateful this week. And last week for my family's health. Because it is not something that is always easy to come by. And, you know, vitamins and health foods and all that is really great. But, you know, there was a lot going on over the last little while. And two days ago, I got to breathe a giant sigh of relief. And it's really made me think about... Being in quarantine and all of the times that I and hopefully other people can make a small choice to inconvenience ourselves to help other people stay safe and healthy. Yeah, because I'm lucky enough to know a lot of medical professionals uh, that mm-hmm. are in my family and very close friends and hearing stories from them just makes me want to put everyone in. I know and love in a bubble.
0: (laughs) I know. I know. But I'm so glad to hear that your family's doing well and that your parents are healthy and that you got to see them and spend Mm -hmm. some time with them. Because I know that means the world to you and them.
1: And I think Tracy and I often have this theme, but I'm making it my something good. Tell the people that you love that you love them. (laughs) Oh, my
0: God. Yes. Just like I said before, don't be a cool guy. Like, I am known for this. I will just randomly text people I know out of the blue and be like, I was just thinking about you and how amazing you are, and I really love you, and I just needed you to know that. Mm. I do it all the time.
1: <laughs> I felt that when you told me to go to bed at 4.30. Yeah, go to bed, please. I love you. You're not allowed to be mean to someone I love. Ooh, wow. So I didn't mean to take it from recipes to sappy, but when you have health or loved ones, or good things going on, guys, I, my theme for this week is just loudly announcing it.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: I think that sounds great. Yeah. All right. Look at us. We had a good week. We learned about some crazy history. We sure did. Ancient beer, local legends, and why stories. Ancient-, <laughs> Ancient beer, local legends. <laughs>
0: All right, everyone, thank you so much for listening. And remember, stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend.
1: Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon. Okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our music was written and performed by Taylor Ashe, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willinginfable.com for our show notes, or find us at Willing on Twitter and Instagram to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite listening source. And of course, join us next time for another round of ancient myths, local legends, and stories with staying power.